Hello, beautiful listeners, and thank you for tuning in to Writing Away to Wellness, a podcast produced by Girls Right Now and hosted by me, Sally Familia. Writing Away to Wellness is a podcast where Girls Right Now community members of all ages, racial and cultural backgrounds, careers, and crafts engage in holistic conversations about wellness in relation to the arts of writing. From avid journalists to authors committed to passing down the tools they have learned to survive the silly world, Writing Away to Wellness is the bridge that leads us to gentle hearts and creative minds. Hello everyone, welcome to another Writing Our Way to Wellness episode. I'm here with Ashley, a mentor and teaching artist of, with Girls Right Now, and Dr. Ijoma, who is studying for pediatrics and psychiatry, right? That's what your residency is in? Yes, that's my training program, yes. Right, yes, so thank you both for joining the episode today. I'll throw it to either one of you to introduce yourself. All right, I'll start. <laughs> um, my name is Dr. Ijama Unachuku. Um, I am currently a resident physician, um, and my program is pediatrics and psychiatry. Um, I've done a lot of a lot of research and a lot of community work in the mental health space, working with different underserved communities um, in different ways, whether that be through. Um, race, uh, ability, disability, social, uh, socioeconomic status. You know, I it's been like my mission to be involved in these certain communities and just make sure that healthcare is accessible and represents all people. Love that. And um, I'm Ashley. I am currently an MBA student in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, I've been a mentor. This will be my third year working with girls right now. So I'm so happy to be here joining in a different capacity. Um, I am currently pursuing marketing, but my long-term goals are to pursue entrepreneurship, specifically in the wellness space. I'd love to develop a brand and a platform to support specifically Black women around practices of self-care and health maintenance. Oh, that sounds really cool. I'm really excited to get into the questions now with you both today. Um, so I'll just jump right into it with our topic being about wellness in the Black community. How would you describe the approach the community has to and what's your opinion on it? Yeah, um, there there's a lot to, to get into this on this topic. Um, with Dr. Ijoma and I kind of having our, our discussions together was as we were preparing to, to, to speak here, realizing that the Black community is so um, expansive and has so many different pockets within it that there's no one true kind of uh, cover all one experience for all of the different components of the Black community. So I think um, my perspective of as a Black American woman is that historically our community my community relies a lot on you know kind of home remedies and trying to uh, we kind of try to solve our medical and wellness problems on our own first before reaching out to the outside and getting professional care I think that approach is coming from kind of this historic and generational distrust and discomfort within the medical system and so um yeah, I, I, while I kind of understand that approach um, in our conversations, uh, Dr. Ajom and I definitely are kind of at that place where we're like, we understand it, but we're, we're, we want to be a part of 
coming together for a solution to shift that. Yeah, 100%. I think that, you know, first of all, thinking of wellness, right? To me, wellness is like the preventative medicine for uh, mental health, right? Because we talk a lot about taking mental health issues just as seriously as physical health issues, right? And, you know, there's big movement towards like preventative care, primary care in like the physical medicine realm. So wellness to me is making sure you're subclinically well before things exacerbate, before we experience trauma, don't know how to treat uh, certain acute issues that might be going on, really just getting to the roots of things and making sure that you have a good foundation first. So when it comes to wellness in the Black community, um, and I want to preface by saying I am only the expert on my own experience. I can only say what I've known, what I've personally seen, or what has um become apparent to me uh, by working with others. Um, and when it comes to wellness, Black people are definitely different um, with that. I think that being a child of, of uh, two immigrants, that it was never priority, right? It was work, work, work. We got to make this American dream happen. It's either you're working, you're studying, you're doing, like, there's no time for feelings. We got to get this money, make get this house, you know, and like succeed. Um, so I don't think that traditionally there is an emphasis on wellness because it seems to be uh, one of those superfluous things you worry about once you've made it. It's not in the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's food, water, you know, <laughs> shelter and all of those things. So now that we're in, you know, an age where a lot of us are first gen, second gen, you know, and again, speaking to the broader uh, Black capital C community. Um, we all have different experiences, but thank goodness mental health is becoming more popular in media and talking about it becoming more popular in media. So how do we approach that now that there's more access and the stigma is kind of declining? And 100% to Ashley's point, we've always had a I'm a do-it-myself mentality. I will go with who I know and who I trust, uh, because we have a problem with the system, capital S system, you know, systems in general. Uh, there's there's mistrust. And historically, we have always healed ourselves, whether you are um, American, Black, immigrant, Jamaican, Caribbean, African in the diaspora, whatever part of Blackness you embody, traditionally and historically, we've always just done it ourselves. So I think that we're a lot less receptive to institutions, if that makes sense. It does. And it makes me wonder to your own personal lives um, and in your family upbringing, did you see that hesitancy, I'll do it myself when it comes to dealing with mental health and wellness? Yes. Um, that was never really a talk in our household. Um, and I, I just think like, you know, it's interesting how things are handled and looking back and reflecting on certain things. But again, you know, it was okay. You can relax once you've done your homework. Mm -hmm. You know, we were a no TV, no video games on weekdays kind of family. Oh, no. So like, what was wellness? What was, what was relaxation? You didn't want to get done with your work. Um, so I feel like it was never a talk, you know, even just like emoting and showing your emotions, you know, you get disciplined, you start crying. 
why are you crying? Why are you crying? I'll give you something to cry about. Uh-huh. <laughs> so uh-huh. you're automatically told that what's the point in tears? What's the point in crying? You know, you're already starting to build these barriers to wellness at a young age. Um, but again, you do things based on what was modeled to you, you know? So I think that it, I never really had to sit and think about my mental health, my wellness until college when, you know, things ain't hard, you're on your own. But I, what was modeled in my household was joy. We love celebrations. Mm-hmm. We love being with each other. But I think dealing with negative emotions was never really discussed much or handled well. I've definitely experienced uh, a lot of what you described, um, Dr. Ijoma. I feel like in my particular household growing up with my mom, reflecting, I realize based on kind of what she did professionally and some of what she had experienced within her own family, I feel very blessed that I grew up knowing what a mental mental wellness day was (laughs) and that um, it was often me turning the opportunity not to attend school because I wasn't feeling well and needed one, but that I had that, that language and that encouragement to take care of myself mentally and it I don't it's not until you like you said you get to college and you get new friendships and learn that people um I guess what is normal in your household is different from what is in other households so mm-hmm. that's something at the time some of the openness to mental wellness um I didn't always realized that that was not a part of everyone's experience and also didn't realize the value in it until much later that there was this openness um my aunt on my dad's side is one of um the people when i was in undergrad and needed to kind of take my own mental health journey um who introduced me to my first therapist so i have been supported in that way um to have those conversations with myself and, and know myself well enough to step into that. So, but definitely being, having experience with, you know, other parts of my family and seeing that exact experience where um, a, many of us do not have the language and um, even given space to have mm-hmm. a, a very vulnerable reaction to something that is painful, <laughs> like crying. So definitely. Yeah. Actually, just to piggyback off of that really quick, um, my I'm number kid number three out of four. My younger brother is five years younger than me. And I don't know like what book she was reading or who she was talking to, but I actively saw my mom like changing her parenting, you know, tactics and like everything with my younger brother. And instead of just like being disciplined, she'd be like, let's talk through things first. I want to hear why you did this, you know? Um, you know, I may have to spank you, but let me tell you why. And I was, what is this? What is this? <laughs> so I think that, you know, even now parents are becoming more hip to those things as well. Yeah. So important. Yeah. I'm an, I'm an only child, but what I hear from people who come from larger families or have multiple siblings, it's, dang the younger kids almost always get like the parent you wish you had and it's like (laughs) yeah um but something you said dr joma made me think about those negative feelings and you brought up that joy was something that was in your house and i think 
I can kind of say I one thing I think black people in our diaspora does so well is celebrate like the way we we make space for those positive feelings and thinking about how big of a deal birthdays are how we approach even just funerals to be like it's a celebration and a gathering of that life I, I it's not a fully formulated thought but I guess I would love to know you two's opinions on why do you think it is that it's so much easier for us to like acknowledge and experience those good feelings but then the negative ones are so so pushed down and repressed uh-huh. i my first thought that came to mind was that is a survival tactic for my ancestors you couldn't there was no time to consider how you felt uh-huh. you didn't have a choice of how you spent your day And so generationally, as a people, we have built survival mechanisms to progress. And those have continued even in the absence of those extreme, you know, conditions that where they started. And so I think that's where you get a lot of us today as professionals, wherever we find ourselves in our career Um, especially Black women, we are still working so very hard and not considering how we feel um, in the Mm -hmm. process of doing and achieving things um, because that has not been something we've ever been taught to do just generationally. It is is these conversations that um, we are just starting to have to kind of look within ourselves and reevaluate and realize like, I don't need to be doing all of this. Um, It doesn't serve me. And um, the celebration comes easily because at the, you know, when, when that is all we had at that point, um, we had to find joy to keep going. And so if there's a way for us to continue celebrating the way that we always have, but also um, start incorporating in those moments and the tools that we need to reevaluate and constantly evaluate ourselves and how our bodies feel uh, physically and mentally. That's going to be cr- crucial for us to continue our progress. A hundred percent. Cannot agree more. Um, I think, you know, this pushing down of negative emotions, right? Much like the little kid who cries when they get spanked and nothing happens, you know? Much mm-hmm. like I'm sure like generations, you know, in America or otherwise, you know, you're angry, you're upset, you're, you're lamenting, you're grieving, does not change anything. White woman tears is a, literally a phrase because when white women cry, things happen, yeah. right? When we cry, we're upset, nothing happens. And sometimes even in fact, worse things happen. You know, so we are conditioned, I feel like, to push those down because we have seen time and time again that it literally doesn't matter. If you cry, if you are upset, the bills still need to be paid. Life still needs to move on. You know, you're in war torn, um, violent, violent areas. Okay, you can be mad. You can be upset. But again, like there's no time for that you know? Mm-hmm. And I've caught myself saying that. I've caught other of my friends saying that, oh, I want, I do want to go to therapy. I know I want to work through these things, but I don't have time for that. I'm juggling two degrees and a job and a this and a that. You know, we don't slow down because of 
that survivalist mentality. And no matter what stage we are professionally, academically, socioeconomically, you know, there's always like a degree of I have to keep moving, I have to keep moving because it's not enough just to walk forward. We got to walk backwards in heels and be black. So it's a lot. So I think when we do have the celebrations, the birthdays, the weddings, the funerals, it's a big deal. Like, I love my traditional Nigerian culture because everything is a party. There's always <laughs> something to celebrate. And we celebrate big because these are the moments. These are the moments that tie us together. These are the moments. These are the family reunions, you know, even mm -hmm. if it is a funeral, you know, that's basically a family reunion you're seeing people you haven't seen in years you know there's just as much as there's so much pain there's so much joy so it's a big deal and we get to be happy and for a day an hour however long the party is shed all of the things all the nasty comments and microaggressions in the work week and doing a job we don't really care about you know we just get to be together and be happy and hear good music and converse and be with our peers i think that we do joy so well because like there's no time to be focusing on all like the negative things you know we want to move forward we want to continue to move forward and you just want to be happy one of the things that came up for me too was not that sense of not having time i think is really also just indicative of to the system we have and while we are definitely talking about this being a problem within the black community i think i can argue that overall just like our healthcare system our economic system doesn't really incentivize rest sitting in negative emotions and actually feeling it because it prevents you from getting up and going to work because if you sat down and acknowledged i think i need to take away time from my job to recover from a traumatic event uh oh who's going to do this work right or who's going to pay this bill or whatever right um so i guess i'd like to talk to you two of course still relating focusing more on the black community but maybe this distrust in the system or how there's not really even an incentive to acknowledge those negative feelings. Um, have you had any experiences where the system maybe didn't make space for you to experience um, poor mental health or poor mental wellness? I'm very fortunate in the sense that, you know, I've spent the majority of my 20s in school and a lot of institutions and universities now have like employee services or will have like counselors and therapists and psychiatrists you can easily connect to. You know, actually finding a good one is a whole nother story. Um, but again, that's these larger institutions that I've been a part of. Um, but outside of that, right, you finally acknowledge that maybe you're depressed, you're anxious, you know, you want to find a provider, you want to reach out to someone. It's ex extremely hard, you know, say you're working nine to five or like 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., 12 hour shift, you know, so you're working and you're coming back at night. You can't even call people, call around, then you have time to be searching around. So before we even get to, I got to get time off work, like, I'm, you know, having a breakdown, like I can't go to work. Okay. But like, say you've tried to do the preventative medicine part, you've tried to do wellness, you, there's, you don't even have the opportunity to, you know, advocate for yourself and find these services because there's just so much going on. There's just so much to do. The work week is not conducive to that. And, you know, a lot of, you know, workplaces now will throw around 
terms like employee wellness and we're going to do this pizza Fridays, taco Tuesdays, you know, oh, quick meditation break before we start our meeting. You know, that's wonderful, but I'm not going to be relaxed at work. I work here. Like, think you want us to do a breathing exercise for 10, 15 minutes and then go back to the pile of work I have to do? Like, how is that going to help? Um, so I just feel like, you know, before we even get to like, okay, I don't have time need any time off work, maybe to like see my therapist today or like find uh, some help in an acute setting. It's all the things that come before that, that we don't even have time for before it builds up to something greater. Cause system, system is broken. Very broken. Yeah. Absolutely agree with everything said. Um, a couple so much to touch on but yes to answer part of the question is being in a system where you don't particularly where i haven't felt particularly i supported or incentivized and in my case it wasn't so directly um, because at the time it was one of my earlier roles and i was so dedicated to it and worked you know, I was salaried, so I just worked as long as I needed to to get the work done, and I was very motivated, and it wasn't to a point that myself, you know, had a light bulb go off that I'm taught, like, it didn't feel, it felt great, because I was doing the work, and I was extending myself, and getting good results, and it was like, I was going to keep going, but, you know, everything, something had other plans for me and I had to stop. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until after I was forced to take a leave from work that um, in me not being able to return to my role because it was filled by the time when I got back, um, you can extend your FMLA and then you, they can hire someone else. It was that feeling of feeling, um, being in, being dispensable mm -hmm. um, where before I was giving my all to my role and so passionate about it and it was so entwined with my identity um, I didn't know what to do when I didn't when I lost that position and it wasn't by choice and it was as a result of my wellness getting in the way mm -hmm. and even though I was working administratively in healthcare in a department very open to all of the topics we're talking about it didn't even make a difference. And so for years, it took me time to process that, rebuild my self-worth separately from what I do for work that um, I'm glad now in hindsight, I'm so glad that I had that experience early on so that I can reprioritize, that I can still have passion for what I do. But there's so much, my, my worth is so much more complex than what I do and what I um, am paid for nine to five, <laughs> um, that I learned that skill early and that, um, but so yeah, that was my experience. It was horrible at the time, but it taught me such a valuable early on in my life. Yeah. And then in terms of the system and we don't have time to stop and invest in an hour of therapy, the time resource, hospitals know, employees know that burnout is a real thing and it costs them a lot of money that is why they are scrambling to do the pizza parties on friday we don't have the answers yet of how to fight burnout but on an individual level burnout will cost you the things that you are working toward if you don't address it 
proactively. It is costly. So you, mm. we have to kind of reorient our thinking of, you know, me taking an hour to step away from this work right now is an investment in me being able to spend the next several hours faster, better, more efficient, that in the same way you're going to spend time in the gym to be able to do X, Y, Z physically, that you need to do the same thing with your mind and your wellness. Could not agree more. Actually, that was such a good point. Um, I actually have a paper that I published last year about uh, burnout, <laughs> burnout amongst um, different healthcare workers during the COVID pandemic. Uh, workers working like substance abuse, um, substance use in Philadelphia, and you know we broke down like the different like spheres of burnout. You know, it's when you no longer feel like you have allegiance to the mission statement. You know, of your company. It's when you don't have the resources to do the job that you really, really want to do. Because especially in substance use, a lot of people go into it because they've had friends, family members who have been affected or they're just genuinely interested in like helping people. So, you know, when we're looking at all of these domains that, you know, make up burnout per this one prior researcher's um, guidelines, you know, we're looking at the things that these healthcare workers are saying and you just see like every little thing just start chipping away at them, you know? And they're like, I just don't know how to do my job anymore like i don't i don't feel the same way as i did when you know i came in and i didn't even think about that when i gave my answer actually <laughs> but it's so true yeah. yeah yeah no it's it's very true burnout is real and it will end up being more costly and people will quit and they will leave and they will find some somewhere else by hell or high water that will allow them to be a human being. Because I found in my own life, the times I'm most anxious and most discombobulated are when, you know, all I do is work home, work home. And I've lost the key pieces of my identity that make me human, right? And not everybody has weekends off, has evenings off. You know, some people are working double shift just trying to survive. So now it becomes, you know, and again, not everybody has the freedom to quit a malignant job as well. So then it becomes, how do we equip ourselves to function in these systems that are not made for us? Yes, agree. And I think where this comes in specifically for the Black community is, which makes this even more complex, is a lot of times when we go into our workforce and we're spending multiple hours a day, like you said, within a system that is not designed for us, that adds another toll. Like we have to kind of, you know, prepare and put our face on to be with our coworkers, to deal with microaggressions, all of these things. A lot of, I think, you know, other communities, they go to work and escape and their coworkers are their, their besties. And I've seen for me and a lot of my friends is like, there's a layer between there because we have to put on the shield of like, you don't know what's gonna happen in a day that you have to protect yourself against. So that adds, you know, and then all of the stuff happening outside of work 
it it so burn i think as of the black community it's we're experiencing experiencing these regular things that everyone experiences and there's another layer on it because we have to deal with systemic racism and another layer on it because we also don't have the tools and the language to fix it for ourselves mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. cosine 100 percent. very well said and I think the burnout conversation is one that's being had, but is not being had on a deeper level because it's, you know, those band-aids, like you said, the Taco Tuesdays, the pizza parties, like the very rudimentary things. But like, I've just been learning more about how it can take sometimes upwards of seven years to fully recover from burnout and just needing that. Right. I don't know if Dr. Joma, you have any thoughts on, are there any like facts about how to recover from burnout that we know yet? Yeah, so I, uh, the research that I had done looked more into like the different factors that cause burnout. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, as a resident physician, like, you know, we all hear residents, you know, they work onto the ground and there's no like overtime pay. Unions and residency have only very recently started uh, becoming a thing to protect their benefits and protect their time. But, um, you know, I be online. I'm on the internet a lot. I love media. I love social media. I love all the ways we can learn from Black Twitter and tweets and the different scandals and the different shows. Big fan. But um, I uh, am part of this like group, a uh, Black doctors group. And one of them is uh, one of the people who posted was like a fifth year surgery resident. You know, they're going to finish this year, however long residency is. They're going to finish this year. Um, and he was saying, like, I do all this work. I'm in all of these surgeries day in, day out. Like, I'm tired. I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. I've basically been put through a five-year-long boot camp. And residents, you know, we're doctors, but we don't get paid a lot. We don't mm-hmm. get those big six-figure doctor salaries, you know. Um, it's, yeah, we get paid enough to survive each year and make it from paycheck paycheck to paycheck you know and he's saying like bro I just feel like if I go to work next week like it's not gonna end well for me like I'm depressed I'm anxious I'm always you know and part of how it feels to be in at work in residency then adding the extra layer of being minority you always feel like you have to be on you know Mm -hmm. your best face forward your best foot forward you have to be on don't say this don't say that you know make sure they know who you are when I go to work I always make sure I'm a a specific level of presentable because I've been confused for a nurse um a PCT you know every role that's not mine so you know I always try to maybe overcompensate in the way I appear to make sure like you know who I am and have my big badge right in center you know and so he was saying how he just always had to be on ready and just just that constant agitation that constant like stress level that's always high he's like I don't care if I'm gonna graduate in six months I need to go I cannot keep doing this day in and day out so we see that a lot and it's hard because like especially at this level we are living in the evidence of like everything that we prayed for you know we spent how long undergrad sometimes doing a master's or post back and then doing medical school then signing the contract for three to seven years of residency right like we asked for this but we also did not ask for this so 
right. It's not like we can quit. It's or it's easy to quit. It's not like we can transfer to another workplace. So again, how do we how do we manage, you know, our dream sometimes turned nightmare, you know, when we did come in here wanting to help people, wanting to be a force as a black woman, wanting to be an example to, you know, young girls, young black girls in STEM and everything. It's it's really hard because you feel like you have a personal responsibility to your patients and to everybody who like helped you out along the way, but you cannot light yourself on fire in order to keep others warm. So it's, it's difficult and it's hard, you know, we, we cry every day, like, you know, it, it's hard. It's just, it's just hard. So I'm not quite sure, you know, what's in place um, to help that because somebody needs to do the job right and that's the hard part you can come you know you can complain you can say everything that you want and everything is valid but it's not like oh you know I'm not gonna go in for like a month because I need to get myself in check somebody needs to do the job it's good if it's not us it's gonna be somebody else and taking a whole month off even though you may need it may push you back and then you have to spend more time in residency when you really don't want to so it's it's hard. It's just hard. And I think that we are recognizing the signs and we're remaining aware and a lot of more research is coming out about burnout in the workplace. And I do think that's the first step, acknowledging all the different factors so you can chip away at it one by one. By one. Yeah, I, I, I agree with what you were saying. And my experience even though I worked within healthcare on the administrative side, a lot of my perspective is is from how the hospital strategically was responding to burnout in providers. Um, and again, I do. I think it a lot of system. We are starting to see the impacts of a lot of systems changing over time, and so we are in that phase of seeing the symptoms of things that changed in the 80s and the 70s and so to answer the question also is that where from my experience also agreeing with Dr. Ijoma that we're not identifying we haven't identified system systematic ways to um in in terms of um providers within hospitals or you know in the broader professional industry to to prioritize wellness in ways that are actually effective. There are a lot of com communities professionally that are still not having the conversation. I think in the medical field, with the knowledge that they have, the particular knowledge, it can't be ignored. And there's this huge physician and other um, medical provider shortage that it's at a point where people are grasping for to understand and, and solutions. So hopefully I see that we see that trickle out to the other um, industries across fields. But I think we're all in this phase of really understanding and standing 10 toes down in the value of understanding burnout and you know the the st statistics that we've talked about is in creating that value in addressing these issues and communicating it to employers and the system so that they do implement like implement interventions to support their employees mm -hmm. yeah you both said such beautiful things and just to respond very quickly i just find it 
counterproductive to be burning out doctors and putting you all in, in uncomfortable positions where you are high stressed and depressed and anxious because then it's your job to take care of people. And it feels really obvious that if the people taking care of people are not okay, how are they going to do a good job at their job? Yep. <laughs> it's like one of those things that is like, if anything, doctors, and I also say the same for teachers, should be living the most comfortable lives yes. possible because that's what our society runs on in many ways, right? Um, mm -hmm. But I also just wanted to talk very quickly about the experiences of Black women and something you said a while ago, Ashley, when you talked about your experience, uh, taking that time off and saying, I need that space and then being replaced. I think there's a larger conversation to be had about Black women, Black queer people, basically like non-cis head Black men about that dispensability, just feeling disposable and just thrown to the wayside. Could you two maybe talk about that experience a little bit? Um, yeah, I, I have some thoughts just and this just speaks to like the stereotypes, right? Um, I remember learning in high school, you know, you learn during World War II, that's the first time women were in the workplace and they were taking over like all the jobs that the men were doing, but like the men were out to war. So they had finally had the ability to be like the engineers, the karmic, like, you know, the first time women were in the workplace, false, not for us. Black women have always been in the workplace. We've always been working, okay? Um, so this is where the strong Black woman trope comes, right? We're strong Black woman. We could do anything. You know, strong, independent woman, don't need no man, da-da-da-da, superwoman complex, all of that, okay? So we already have that on our backs. And to a certain point, like, it's great. Be independent, like, you know, do your thing. But the fact that there's, like, that label, you know, being labeled as a strong Black woman. What does that actually look like? That means that you will not receive help, you know, because you're assumed that you can do it all on your own. Don't need no man, don't need no help. I'm, no, I'm dependent. I need help. I will cry at work, okay? <laughs> what do you, help me, help me. So, so when we say that the system deprioritizes Black women specifically, 100% too, true, because they don't think that we need it, but nor do we always ask for it, right? Because again, if somebody has never given you anything before, how are you even going to know what to ask for, right? Deprioritizes Black women and other minoritized communities inside the Black capital C community um, because either we're so marginalized, nobody's checking for us, or these stereotypes that have been passed down for years prevent us from getting the help that we need. And that is so, so, so apparent looking at specifically maternal mortality, seeing how Black people's pain is not taken seriously. Black woman pain is not taken seriously. Serena Williams, one of the most famous Black women on the planet, you know, almost died during childbirth because they didn't believe her. You know, when she was saying she's in pain, this doesn't feel right. My body does not feel right, you know, but she's Serena Williams and she's super muscular and she's great and she's fine. She doesn't have pain. Bro, she almost died. We almost lost her. Okay. So it's so evident just looking at Black people's experiences in the hospital, you know, receiving primary care, even looking at like sickle cell, right? Sickle cell is very prominent in the Black community, in the African community, you know, so you're going to the hospital, you're having a sickle cell crisis, your whole body is in pain, immediate morphine, you know, first we saw Tylenol, ibuprofen, all of that, fine, normal like NSAIDs, and then 
that pain increases morphine, right? And people who have sickle cell are living longer and longer now, thank God, because of medication. So, you know, I'm seeing like a 20-year-old in the hospital who has had sickle cell her whole life. She knows what to do, how to manage her pain. She's been in and out the hospital. She knows how this goes. So she's saying like, Tylenol isn't going to work for me. Give me the morphine. And that automatically gets perceived as, you know, she's she's seeking meds, you know, she's addicted, you know, but no, the pain is so severe and she's been through this so many times. She knows herself and she knows what works for herself, right? Again, there's just that barrier like, oh yeah, we've seen sickle cell a million times and we know that these kids need morphine, but also she's a woman, like we don't trust her. You know, there's always like that disconnect because as much as we are disrespected, um, by the systems we're also not trusted and it all just you know adds to the reason why we just do things by ourselves yeah could i add very quickly ashley i'm sorry just like i have to get this out um just like to that point dr jumba i think about you were talking about with black women and and not like you know your body you know your pain and it just makes me think about the complexity of now there's also ableism where this is a person who has something that disables them and there's so much there's so little conversation too for like black people black women and chronic pain and that they need to be seen and they need to be acknowledged that like this is just an ableism problem in the healthcare system and then when you have already being a black woman where they're expecting you to lie and be dramatic and all of that just like all the intersectionality of it of it all it's just so fascinating but also how you brought up the maternal mortality rate in that there are so many cases of black women systemically being violated by doctors especially during childbirth and us losing so many black women in childbirth that could have been avoided mm -hmm. serena for example beyonce another example but then there are some women who survive but have been disabled by their childbirth or have just been disabled by the healthcare system and so it's this never-ending cycle of the system doesn't believe me you disable me if you don't give me the treatment i need in time and then when i need treatment for my disability you gave me you don't believe me either or like now you brought mm -hmm. up sickle cell and made me think about how that cure has come out but it's two million dollars so really yes. who is going to access that particularly when black people are systemically faced with classism while there are some wealthy black people who can access it the majority of those with sickle cell will not be able to so yeah yeah i want to keep on that that tangent i don't have anything to add um i guess i can respond to that is just and i think dr Idrioma will be able to take it home but everything you just described is internally the healthcare system knows that this is like the way things work is a dumpster fire right now and so i think again to my point of like there have been a series of changes in within healthcare particularly it operating operating more and more business like that have led we're just seeing these symptoms and so i think the system is at a place of catch up and we're at this pivotal place where as people as patients where it's 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 time for the tide to kind of shift so that we're not so we're actually ha receiving health care it is not very much operating that way and please correct me if anything that i've stated is wrong from your perspective um dr Ijeoma, but 
I, from what I've experienced in, and having many friends right now who are, I've been with them since undergrad and, you know, wanting, aspiring to be a physician and getting through med school, becoming residents, becoming attendings. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot at each stage is not what anyone expected. And um, it's hard for everyone right now, and especially people of color, Black people, to process what they're experiencing on both sides of the healthcare industry. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you both for, for sharing that. And I guess, why do you think it's important that we have these kind of conversations and sharing our resources for the Black community and for Black women? Because big thesis of this whole talk, there's so much distress in the system, right? And as a person in the healthcare system, you know, it's hard because I love science. I love evidence-based practices. You know, I'm a big fan of a well-run research, you know, paper and good, a good article. But not everybody has that experience. Not everybody has that health literacy. Not everybody knows to look up on Google Scholar, find your reputable uh, sources, right? For people who are, you know, more health literate in, you know, academia, it's easy to have access to these things, right? Because this is our profession, this is our lives. But you know, if you don't have that access, if there are barriers, you know, uh, I had a girl who was doing my hair a couple of months ago. Uh, she's early 20s, super sweet, told, uh, she's like, oh, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a doctor. She said, I've never met a black female doctor before, 20 something years old, never met one, you know? And um, here in Pittsburgh, you know, not everybody has access to that community. So it's really important to have these conversations amongst ourselves with other people because you gain exposure, right? And if it's a mental health issue, you start to realize, okay, I'm not the only one that is feeling these things. I'm not the only one who is looking for these things, looking for these services. So let me just start saying things out loud and, you know, we'll see if anybody's picking up what I'm putting down. It's just super important to be open and just to have that awareness, right? The saying goes, knowledge is power. Even if you don't have the knowledge, just that awareness and knowing that things are out there and that people are talking about things. And we are recognizing that the system is messed up. The system is difficult to navigate. Having that validation means everything, you know, and that's why I love doing things like this. And that's why I love doing research, because you're bringing legitimacy to things that we already know we experience every single day. We see it with our own eyes and we say, oh, it'd be like that, but then what, you know, what then? So having these conversations could really help a lot more people feel comfortable talking about mental health, you know? And I know we're all skeptical by nature, um, but there are people you can trust, whether it's skin folk, whether it's other kin folk, you know, there are good people out there. Agree. Agree. I think this particular conversation could have gone so many different ways. And there's so much to speak on this topic. It naturally turned into this kind of conversation on the state of healthcare, because that's that's how many, that's the way that you access a lot of wellness. Like you have to seek professionals. So much of what we shared was that there's no solution yet. And so we need, and, and, and the experts, all of the experts, that the people, the decision makers don't, haven't figured the answer out. 
So all of us have a perspective um, about what's going on and that's valuable. So the more that we're having these conversations, the more that we can inspire each other and you never know who's going to come up with something that could be a major shift in what's going on. And we, we need all of our collective work to, to come together and make these systems better for all of us. Um, I think that's the, that's what I will leave with because I, I love what Dr. Ejima said on the, the side of like personal wellness. And I just do want to piggyback off that. You know, I think that the capital S system isn't great. You know, we're a huge country. We're a huge community. It doesn't always look out for the individual. But I think that looking for resources in your lowercase c community, where you live, where you work, you know, however you intersectionally identify, I think there's a strength to that because there's a lot of nonprofits, grassroots organizations, YMCA, you know, even you're like, if your religious organization, your church, your mosque, like you're whatever, you know, I say support group, they might say ministry. We have a women's ministry. We have a widow's ministry. You know what I mean? Find your smaller community because looking politically, you know, in, or like in the healthcare industry, widespread um, movements, widespread national institutions or national laws don't really help every little person because smaller communities, bigger change, more of a chance that something is more tailored to you. So, you know, even though you can't Google and look at always find like national all database or statewide database for therapists or anything. If you talk to enough people in whatever community you identify um, in, you can start to find some things. For sure. Yes. I mean, I think that's a great note to end on. And thank you both for having this conversation with me. Um, thank you to everyone who listened today to this episode. And we'll see you in the next one. A huge thank you to Catherine, Ashley, and Dr. Ijama for fostering such a fruitful and authentic conversation about wellness in the Black community. Thank you again for joining us for another episode of Writing Our Way to Wellness, a podcast published bi-weekly on Thursdays. Follow along as we foster spaces where emotions are seen with an open heart and words received with reverence. Make sure to never miss an episode by subscribing to the Girls Right Now Substack at girlsrightnowmedia.org and catch us wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is a production of Girls Right Now. It was recorded and edited by Catherine Dustin and produced with the support of Sally Familia and Ronnie Kerr. Thank you always for your time and energy and remember the value of your smaller community.